Good morning. Uh, please turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 3, the letter to the Hebrews and chapter 3. And if you would uh, just join me in prayer one more time. Where else can we go, O Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And so this morning as we come to your word, hungry, needy, would you show us your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. May he be on display by the power of your spirit through your preached word. And it's his, in his glorious name we pray. Amen. There is a lot of focus these days in sports psychology on the phenomenon of attention narrowing. Attention narrowing. So a few years ago, uh, a group from the New York University, a group of sports psychologists, conducted uh, some research. They took uh, two groups out to a park in New York City. They asked both groups to traverse uh, the same length of distance. And one group was told to focus their attention on some kind of an object, either a parking cone or a water cooler that was placed at the end point. The other group wasn't given that instruction. They were told to just make, make the distance. And what this research determined was that the group that focused their attention on an object actually finished 23% faster than the group which did not focus their attention on anything. In fact, the group that had this end point, this particular object that they were looking at, even felt less exertion. They felt 28% less exertion than the group who was traversing the distance with wandering attention. So this has become very common in sports. Many sports teams now have a sports psychologist uh, mainly to help them focus on the goal. Uh, as one sports coach puts it, what we focus our attention on will increase in our life. In today's passage, the author of Hebrews wants to do some attention narrowing with us. He wants us to focus our attention on that which must increase in our life, on Christ, the only one through whom we can make it to the end. You might remember the context of this letter. These people were in constant temptation. They were facing suffering and affliction and persecution for their faith. They were tempted to turn away from Christ, tempted to throw it all away and return to their former way of life in Judaism. And the author is writing this. It's a sermon originally preached. He's preaching this to encourage them to press on to the end. And he does so from the very beginning by pointing their eyes, pointing our eyes to Jesus. Jesus is God's final word. He is the one who has fully and finally revealed God and God's plans to us. Jesus is God's divine son. He is the perfect image of God. He is the only one in whom we have purification of sins through his death on the cross. He is greater than the angels. He is supreme. 
He leads us into a greater salvation, delivering us from Satan, sin, and death. He is leading us into glory. The author's goal is that these suffering Christians would persevere and make it to that glory. And so here he encourages them towards that end by calling them, by calling us to narrow our attention, to focus our eyes on our faithful Savior, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, any lethargy, drift, backsliding in the Christian life is always the result of failing to focus on Jesus. So that's the goal of this passage for us. That we would persevere to the end by narrowing our attention, by focusing on the faithfulness of Jesus. And my prayer this morning, brothers and sisters, is that as we focus on Jesus in this passage, that our hearts would be moved with confidence and hope to make it to the end, to hold on to Him. So as we look at the text, what you'll notice is this text is structured like a sandwich. You're very familiar with that structure now. The outer verses are like two pieces of bread which actually say something about us. And then in the middle, the central section, it speaks all about Jesus. So verse 1 and 6 say something about us. And then verses 2 to 5 focuses our attention on Christ. So follow that as, as, as I read this passage. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So we're going to begin in the center with the focus on Jesus, and we'll look at Jesus from three angles that the author wants us to focus on him. And then we'll work our way outwards to the focus on us, what Jesus has done for us, who he makes us. So we'll look at three angles and focus on Jesus, and then we'll look at three truths concerning ourselves. First, Jesus. The author wants us to focus on Jesus in his office. Focus on Jesus in his office. Look there at verse 1, second half of verse 1. He says, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. The author exhorts his hearers to consider Jesus. Now that word consider uh, does not mean, you know, kind of a light matter of picking between options, like, oh, I'm going to consider whether or not I'll go to Alwada Mall for lunch today. No, the word consider here means to fix one's attention on something. 
fix your attention to continuously and intentionally observe something. To fix your thoughts on something. Like looking through a telescope and focusing on an object in the distance. Like running a race and fixing your eyes on the end goal. A, a good word to use here would be focus. Focus on Jesus. So the author is saying, focus on the apostle and the high priest of our confession. This is what I mean by Jesus' office. When the author calls him the apostle and high priest of our confession, it focuses on Jesus' role. That's what's spelled out here in these phrases. His role, his office. And there's two parts to this. He's the apostle and he's our high priest. So this might seem odd to you that Jesus is called the apostle. And in fact, it might be the only place in the New Testament where he is called uh, apostle. So what does that mean? I thought there were apostles and Jesus was the Lord of the apostles. How can he be the apostle? Well, the, the word apostle means the one who is sent, a sent one or a messenger. It comes from the Greek word apostello, to send. Jesus is the sent one. He is not an apostle. He is the apostle. He has come. He is the full and complete word of God, the very revelation of who God is. He is God's fullest and final revelation of himself to us. He has come down from heaven to earth to reveal God to us. He is the representative of God to human beings. He is God's sent one, an apostle. He represents God to man. Jesus is fully and eternally God. He comes down, takes on human flesh, became like us except without sin, and represents God to us. It also says he is our high priest. He is the high priest of our confession. What does that mean? Well, not only does Jesus represent God to us, he also represents us before God. As the high priest, he is the representative of men to God. He represents us. He makes propitiation for our sins. If you remember from a few weeks ago, the word propitiation is very important. It means that he absorbs God's righteous judgment on our behalf and turns away the wrath of God from sinners who believe in him. You see, in the Old Testament, you might remember from the book of Leviticus, uh, there was a system by which atonement was made and by which man entered the presence of God. There was the tabernacle, and in the tabernacle, which was a tent, you had this one compartment, the innermost compartment, which was the holy of holies or the holiest place in which God's immediate presence and glory dwelled. And once a year, on one day in the year, the high priest, one man, on the day of atonement, would enter into that holiest place, into the presence of God. He would need to make sacrifices for sin, and then enter with the blood of sacrifice, thus obtaining atonement, forgiveness of sins. It was only momentary, once a year, every year, all pointing forward to the day when the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest himself would make full and complete purification of sins, not offering the blood of bulls and goats, but offering himself, dying on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for sinners, representing us, 
and he has made purification of sins. He has entered into God's presence in heaven eternally forever. He has sat down on the throne of God. The veil that separated us from God has been torn and we all now have access, full and complete forgiveness of sins, access and boldness to approach God through Christ. And we have the promise of entering into God's dwelling, into God's heavenly kingdom, heavenly city forever through what our faithful high priest has done. So he is the apostle, he's the high priest of our confession, the author says. So, you know, when we hear the word confession, sometimes you might think of uh, ed, uh, it means that, you know, you're admitting something that you did wrong. Well, confession does mean that, but here it means something different. Here, what the author of Hebrews means by confession has a very important meaning. Confession also means declaring the truth that you believe. Declaring the truth that you believe. And so Jesus, in his identity as the sent one from God, as our high priest, his person, his work, is the central core truth of the Christian faith. He is the one whom we confess, whom we proclaim, whom we believe. We confess that he is our apostle. He is the one who has come from God to man. He is our high priest. He is the one who represents us to God. He is God eternal who has taken on human flesh, become fully human like us yet without sin, and who draws us near to God. As fully God and as fully man, he is the one who represents God to man, and he is the one who represents man to God. He is our mediator for all who believe. And so, dear friends, when you are tempted to give up, when you are tempted to lose hope, when the trials of this life and the cares of this world weigh you down and cause your eyes to drift and cause your heart to turn from your Savior, Hebrews says this, focus on Jesus. Focus on the one sent from God to save you. Focus on the one who has made purification for your sins. Focus on the one who has entered into the Holy of Holies, into the holiest place of heaven where he intercedes for you even now. Focus on the one who has made a way for us to follow and who is able to help you no matter how fierce the temptation. Don't fix your eyes on your circumstances. Fix your eyes on Jesus, God's apostle, our high priest, the one whom we confess. So the author shows us Jesus in his office. Second, he shows us Jesus in his faithfulness. We must focus on Jesus in his faithfulness. Look again at verse 2. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. And the key word there is the word faithful. Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was. So the author introduces here a comparison between Jesus and Moses that will continue through the rest of this uh, section. 
And you might remember the context again. These people were tempted to leave their faith, abandon their faith. They were tempted to abandon Christ and the difficulties that came with being a Christian and go back to their comfortable way of life in the Jewish religion. And if you think about the Jewish religion, who is the most significant figure in Judaism? Who was the central figure for them in the previous religion? The answer, of course, is Moses. And the author of Hebrews here does not want in any way to denigrate or criticize Moses, no. He, he wants to be sure to remind us that Jesus' work and who Jesus is is not in conflict with Moses. In fact, Moses was faithful. That's what he says. Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. And the author wants us to see that Jesus has been faithful just as Moses was. As we keep reading, he will show us why Jesus is greater than Moses, why Jesus is worthy of more honor and glory than Moses. But he simply begins by saying that Jesus has been faithful in the same way that Moses was. That's the point here in verse 2. Consider the fact that Jesus has been faithful to the one who appointed him. And that means that Jesus was faithful to the mission for which God appointed him. He faithfully fulfilled his mission. He did that all, all that God sent him to do. What was his mission? Of course, you might remember from chapter 2. His mission was to come to us, the many sons whom God has appointed for glory, those who believe in him. And he suffered to sanctify us, to cleanse us from our sin. He will lead us as the family of God, as his own brothers of whom he is not ashamed. Chapter 2, he will lead us into glory. He came, he took on our flesh, he tasted death so that he might deliver us from Satan, sin and death. And he came to be our high priest, to make propitiation from, for our sins, to turn away from us the wrath of God for all who believe. In this mission, in the salvation that God sent Jesus to accomplish, Jesus was faithful. He said, it is finished. He has fully accomplished everything that is necessary for our salvation. And focusing on His faithfulness is the key to our faithfulness. Friends, isn't that such a comforting thought? That our salvation has been secured by the faithful Son of God Himself. When you feel weary, when you're tempted to give up, when that sin comes close and is enticing you, don't focus on your faithlessness. Focus on Christ's faithfulness. The author wants us to see one more truth as it concerns Jesus. He's faithful in his office. He, we focus on Jesus' office. We focus on his faithfulness. But Jesus is not just another Moses. He's not just another prophet. No, far from it. He is one who is greater, superior, infinitely worthy of more glory. Which leads to our third angle from which we focus on Jesus. We focus on his office. We focus on his faithfulness. And finally, we focus on Jesus in his sonship. In his sonship. Look at verse 3 through the beginning of verse 6. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house 
has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now, one of my favorite places on planet Earth, and most of you know that I am a foodie, so this place is a food lover's destination. In fact, people call it God's own country. It's the state, South Indian state of Kerala. So many people ask me if I'm from Kerala, even though I'm not, I, I don't know why. And, you know, they, they're, they're one of the largest people from Kerala, Malayalis, are one of the largest populations here in the Gulf region. In fact, they are scattered all over the world. There is one saying that says that, uh, you know, there, there are Malayalis found on the surface of the moon. And uh, one particular uh, cultural tradition in Kerala that I found very interesting is the phenomenon of the house name, right? So any of your Keralaite friends, uh, I'm sure you can find them after the service, you can go and ask them, what's your house name? And they'll give you uh, a name with many, many syllables that is very hard to pronounce. So I had a, a friend uh, several years ago, he went by Deepu Jacob, but his house name was Mundukotakal. So we used to just call him Mundu. And uh, yeah, he, he, he was a joke between us. But he said, oh, you guys are calling me by my house name. Now, why they have a house name is because someone in the family has, is this is every Malayali's dream, all right, to make a lot of money and then build a house in the hometown. And when they build the house, they give the house a name. So the house, the dwelling place, has a name. And then thereafter, after that house is built, after that dwelling place has been built, everybody in that family takes on the name of the house. So it becomes a family name. So it's the name of the dwelling place of the house that's been built, and now it's also the name of the family. It's the family name. Everyone who was born into that family, born into that house, takes on that name. So house refers to dwelling place. House also refers to family, a household. And if you get that idea, you will understand what is going on in verses 3 to 6, you see. Because here the author is using this double sense of the word house as he draws a comparison between Jesus and Moses. Okay, remember again, these people were tempted to return to Moses. And you can see why. Moses, when you speak of Judaism, you have to speak of Moses. Moses was a big deal in Judaism. Moses is a big deal in the Bible. In fact, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, were written by Moses. Moses was faithful as God's servant. If you've been reading the Bible reading plan, then you've probably just uh, finished the book of Numbers this past week. And you, remind, you might remember the context in which these words were spoken in the book of Numbers. Moses is a faithful servant in God's house. That's from Numbers chapter 12 and verse 7. And the incident there was that Aaron, the high priest, and Miriam, the sister of Moses, were grumbling against Moses' leadership, both for uh, racial reasons, because he was married to a Cushite, and also because they didn't like him having all the authority. Doesn't God speak through us as well? 
And then God calls them to the tent. Aaron and Miriam, it's like being called to the principal's office. And God says this to them. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. You see, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which was read earlier, there was no prophet ever to arise again in Israel like Moses. And so when it calls Moses a servant, it's not to belittle him. Servant of the Lord is actually an exalted title. He was a servant in God's house. It's like saying, what's your profession? Well, I'm an assistant, office assistant. Okay, whose office assistant are you? I'm the office assistant to the sheikh, to the king. That's kind of a big deal. Moses was the greatest in God's house. But he was still a servant. And the author wants us to see Christ is greater. He's worthy of greater glory, of greater honor, because he is God's son. And he is the one who builds God's house. And we've probably had this experience, I've had it several times, where you're in a restaurant and there's a, there are waiters who are serving you and then someone else comes along and asks you how the meal is and all of this. And you might assume they're just another waiter, but then you realize, no, this is the owner and the chef of the restaurant. Or in a store where you're being served by a store clerk and then someone else comes along and asks you how your experience has been. And then you realize this is not just another clerk in the store. This is the owner of the store. This is the guy who runs the business. Moses was a servant in the house. Christ is the son. Moses was a member of the house. Christ is the builder. Look at verse 5 again. Look at Moses' role. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Everything that Moses was, everything that Moses did, all of the things surrounding him point forward to Jesus. Moses is written into the story of God. He's written into history as a person who points forward, whose life is a trailer, a preview of one who is greater. The exodus and the freedom of, from slavery from Egypt as God brought his people out of slavery through Moses points forward to the new exodus, the slavery from Satan, sin and death that Jesus rescues us from. The tabernacle, which was the dwelling place of God with his people, points forward to Jesus, the greater tabernacle, the one who is God himself who dwelled among us and brings us to dwell with God through him. The sacrificial system that Moses instituted, the Levitical sacrifices, all point forward to Jesus and his greater perfect sacrifice, his blood which purifies sin. The bread from heaven, the manna, which through Moses was supplied to the people of Israel in the wilderness, points forward to Jesus, who is the bread of life, who feeds our hungry souls. The commandments of the law that Moses gave point forward to one who writes his law on our hearts. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the lawgiver himself. Jesus says, John chapter 5, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. One so great as Moses is a mere servant 
Jesus is the son. Moses is a member of the house. Jesus is the builder of the house. And you come back again to that word house, which I told you is used in two different senses. Moses was faithful, on the one hand, as a servant in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. God's house, God's dwelling place by which he dwelled with his people. And you could say Moses was faithful as a servant over God's household at the time. The people of Israel, the family of God, the household of God. In the old covenant, God's house was the tabernacle, later the temple, and the people of Israel, his family among whom he dwelled. But all of these were pointing forward to a greater tabernacle and a new and perfect family. Verse 6, we are God's house. Together with Moses and all who believe, the house in which Moses served is the house in which Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the builder of this house. He has built a temple which is God's house, his dwelling place. He has built a household, a people, which is God's house, his family, the church. We are God's temple. We are God's family that Christ has built through his death on the cross and his resurrection. He brings people from all nations to be God's house. 1 Peter chapter 2, as you come to him, a living stone, Rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. You too, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. And what the author is telling us here is that Jesus is worthy of more glory, more honor than Moses, because he is the builder of God's house. When you go to the Louvre and you look at the paintings and you say, oh wow, what a beautiful painting. Of course, you're attributing honor not to the painting itself, but to the one who painted it. Leonardo da Vinci is worthy of more honor than the Mona Lisa. Beethoven is worthy of more honor than all of the pieces that he composed. An architect is worthy of more honor than the structures that he has designed. And so in the same way, the author wants us here to focus on Jesus as the son who builds the house of God. He is worthy of more glory because he is the one who builds God's dwelling place, who builds God's family, and who rules over it as God's son. Remember I told you at the start that what the author says about Jesus is sandwiched between what he says about us. We focus our eyes on Jesus we focus on him in his office, in his faithfulness, in his sonship. And then we can more clearly see who we are and what he calls us to. One of the greatest works of Christian theology begins with these words. Nearly all the wisdom that we possess, insofar as it is true and sound wisdom, consists in this, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And we don't have a right and true knowledge of ourselves until we have gone up to the mountaintop and gazed at who God is. And we have gazed at Christ now. We focused on Him. Now we properly understand who we are in Him. And so we look here at three truths about who we are. So go to the top now. Look at verse 1. The author says, Therefore, holy brothers, sharers in a heavenly calling. 
consider Jesus. First, because of Jesus, we are holy brothers. That's you and me. By the way, the word brothers there includes sisters. Holy brothers and sisters. We are holy. Of course, this reminds us of what it said in chapter 2, that Jesus sanctifies us. He is the one who sanctifies us by His blood. He cleanses us from sin through His death on the cross. We have been made holy. If you are in Christ this morning, that's you. You are holy. You are a holy brother, a holy sister. We are a holy community. The church is a holy community of brothers and sisters. Of course, the New Testament speaks of us in many ways. It reminds us that we are sinners. There's no shortage of reminder of that fact. But here, we are reminded that we are saints. We are fundamentally new. Dear brother or sister, be reminded of this. In your pursuit of godliness, when you are seeking to keep God's commands, to live in obedience before God, you're not trying to do something that is contrary to who you are. You're not trying to do something that is contrary to your very nature. No, in Christ, you have a new nature. Your fundamental identity is one of holiness. You are a saint. You are a new creature in Christ. And so in your striving after holiness and godliness, you are doing what you have been made to do. Praise God. You are conforming to what God has made you to be. And we are brothers. Brothers and sisters to one another. And brothers and sisters to Christ. Remember chapter 2? He is not ashamed to call them, to call us, brothers. We are his holy family. Holy brothers. Second, because of Jesus, we share a heavenly calling. We share a heavenly calling. Did you notice what it says there? Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Share means we are participants in this. We are partakers of this. And when it speaks of a heavenly calling, that's a way of referring to both the source of Christian life and its goal. The source of our Christian life and its goal. Heaven is the source of the Christian life. God has called us from heaven. If you are a Christian today, you are so because God himself reached out from heaven into your darkness and brought you into his marvelous light. You became a Christian because God called you with his irresistible grace. He called you through the preaching of the gospel, plucked you out of the kingdom of Satan and brought you into the family of Christ. That's what makes us Believers, His call. And our heavenly calling also refers to the goal of the Christian life. That Jesus is leading us onward, leading us homeward, into His heavenly kingdom, into our home, the heavenly city that will one day come down and fill this earth. Our home is not in this world with all its suffering and sin and sickness. Our home is God's heavenly kingdom with Christ and we taste that heavenly kingdom. You want a taste of that heavenly kingdom? We taste that heavenly kingdom every single week as we gather here in God's presence. And one day, you and I, who are in Christ, will be there forever. And when the New Testament speaks like that, holy brothers 
sharers in a heavenly calling, you might hear that and, and say like, huh? who, me? Is that, who's that talking? Is that talking about this guy here? Really? Me? Yes, you. You, dear believer in Christ. You, dear sister in Christ. You are holy. A sharer in a heavenly calling. This is what Jesus has made you. If you go down to verse 6, you'll see again the most glorious thing of all. We are holy brothers. We share in a heavenly calling. And because of Jesus, we are God's house. Look at verse 6 there. We are His house. We come back again to that idea of the house. Why does God build a house? Why does anyone build a house? So that he may live in it. God dwells among his people. God lives in his church. He walks among us. His presence is among us. The church is the house of God. Built by the blood of Christ, the Son of God. And it is the house that will last forever and ever. It is God's dwelling place. And we are God's family. What a great privilege to be members of this house. As one author says, there is no greater privilege than membership in the church. There is no greater calling than the Christian's calling to participate in the work of the church. This is why, by the way, we keep emphasizing church membership here at ECC of committing in covenant to the body of Christ. And not just committing on paper, putting your name on a list, but of being involved, being an active member, meaningful membership, involving yourself, engaging in the life of the church, developing relationships with others, because it's a glorious thing. You see, one day, everything else is going to pass away. It will all fade and fail. Your work that you give so much of your time to, your ambitions, our business endeavors, all the money that we accumulate, our stuff, it's not going to last forever. It'll all be gone. In the end, it is what Christ is doing through the church that will matter the most. And so if you're not engaged in the life of the church, if you're sitting on the periphery or have dropped out, if you are attending but have never committed, I just want to plead with you in love. Friend, you don't know what you're missing out on. This is a glorious thing. You don't realize how impoverished our lives become without the church. If you're not engaged in the church community, then you're really missing out on something glorious. You're missing out on what's most important. You're missing out on a part of what God is doing in His family, in His dwelling place. 
And I want to speak to you this morning, if you're here, and if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not a part of his family, not a part of his house, if you haven't received his heavenly calling, if you're here, dear non-Christian friend, or if you're here and you call yourself a Christian, but you really haven't known Christ, this can be yours today. See, the Bible calls us holy brothers, but the truth is by nature, none of us are holy. In fact, we come into this world unholy. We're sinners. It says we're sharers in a heavenly calling, but if we look at our lives by nature, we are earthly. Never set our eyes on heaven. We don't come into this world in the house of Christ. No, we come into this world born into the house of sin. But in His grace and mercy, the Bible says that God has sent His own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God, took on human flesh, becoming fully man, lived the perfect life without sin, died the perfect death, a sacrificial death on the cross to cleanse us from sin, to make us holy for all who will turn away from sin and put their trust in Him. So I want to speak to you today, if you don't know Him, would you hear His heavenly calling? Would you hear the voice of the Son of God speaking to you today and calling you to be a part of His house, to be a part of His family, to put your faith in Him? Hear Him calling you today, dear friend, and respond in faith. So in this passage, we've focused on Jesus on His office, on His faithfulness, on His sonship. We've seen what He makes us by grace, holy brothers with a heavenly calling, members of God's house. But the passage ends with a word, a clause that might make us nervous. Look again at verse 6. We are His house if... If, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Before you feel uncomfortable and discouraged with that note of warning and the tone of warning that keeps on repeating in Hebrews, let's first be reminded of the great encouragement that we've just received, that the author has told us who we are in Christ. You see, in the New Testament, in the Christian life, in the letter to the Hebrews, there are two realities that are both true at once. One is that all true believers are safe and secure, held by God and by Christ. We cannot lose our salvation. God will preserve us to the end. And the other reality that is also true is that all true believers must persevere must be exhorted and warned to persevere to the end. If you are truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will persevere to the end. We don't rely on who we are or what we haven't done. We rely on who He is and what He has already done. Jesus has done it all. But it is trials and temptations that will prove the reality of our faith. It's by staying in the house that we prove that we belong in the house. See, the Bible doesn't call us to just a one-time act of repentance and faith. No, the Bible calls us to 
ongoing commitment and faithfulness now and to the end. We have to keep holding on in hope, holding on in confidence, holding on not to ourselves but to Christ. We must hold on. How do you hold on with all of the trials that we face, all of the temptations that we face, all of the cares and worries and anxieties of this life? How do you do that? You know, C.S. Lewis once said, reality, looked at long enough, is unbearable. And it's true, if we look at the reality around us, in this world, it's unbearable. We lose all hope. Yet, Hebrews encourages us, don't give up, don't lose hope, don't lose confidence, keep on. How do you do that? The key is whom you're looking at. Great uh, war leader, Napoleon, when they went out to battle, before any battle commenced, he would have his generals come into his tent and look into his eyes. Friends, focus on Jesus. Look into his eyes. Focus on his faithfulness and it will be the key to your faithfulness. Focus on his perfection, his beauty, his majesty, his divinity, his humanity. Focus on his person, his work, his glory. Focus on his cross. Focus how he came to save you. Focus on how he bled and suffered and died for you. Focus on his resurrection and his ascension and his session right now, ruling and reigning from heaven. Focus on him even now, praying for you, calling to you, ready to welcome you, to comfort you, to help you. Look into his eyes. Holy brothers and sisters, sharers in a heavenly calling, members of God's house, look at Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our great and glorious Savior. Would you turn our eyes from our troubles to look into his eyes, our great Redeemer, that we would focus on him and hold on in hope. In Jesus' name, amen.